Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics Chat. Uh, my guest today is Guillaume Fillon. Guillaume recently published a manuscript titled Analytic Combinatorics for Bioinformatics 1, Seeding Methods. And uh, in this article, he applies analytic combinatorics, which uh, we will talk in a minute what it is, uh, and things called uh, generating functions. So he applies that to the problem of finding the optimal seed length uh, for read mapping. Guillaume, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you very much for the opportunity, Roman. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah. So uh, some people, even if they don't recognize you uh, by your name, they will definitely recognize the uh, title of your blog, which is The Grand Locus in uh, big red letters. I think I first came across it uh, last year when I was uh, searching for um, uh, Burroughs-Wheeler Index. And uh, on, on the about page of your blog, you say that uh, you're a scientist who loves biology and mathematics. So I'm curious to hear about your uh, path as a scientist and how you came to be interested in both mathematics and biology. Well, I, I guess that's a, that's a great question. Uh, I feel I'm, I'm representative uh, of my generation in that sense, because uh, when I started my studies, uh, it was in 98, uh, basically bioinformatics did not really exist yet. Of course, there were a couple of people who were doing it before it, it actually existed. But everybody had the feeling in the community that uh, it's going to be something big, but nobody really knows what it's going to be. And so there were a couple of, of programs, of teaching programs for PhD students, but also for earlier stages of education, like master's and, uh, and bachelor degree, that were offering the possibility to go into the, the pre-bioinformatics. But I remind you that at that time, the genomes were not yet sequenced. You know, we had only the genome of E. coli, of Drosophila, and that was it. And, and there was all this big fuss about the, uh, the other genomes that were under construction, in a sense. And so there was all this excitement about the, uh, about the future of bioinformatics. Nobody really knew what it was, but they, they started to offer some, uh, some trainings. And so this, this is how, let's say, I started a little bit uh, in the field of bioinformatics from, from the beginning, basically ground up. I was in, uh, in Lyon back then in France, and it was the, the second year they had opened this, uh, uh, this training program for bioinformatics. Uh, and so right, right from the beginning, I really thought this, this is the stuff I want to do. This is really what I'm really interested in. Uh, and what attracted me to it is, like I said, these promises of something really big happening, thanks to the genomes that were sequenced and all, all these all these new technologies with the computers that were rapidly expanding, but also because uh, I like the logics of it really as, as a biologist, which was my other, you know, other part of the education. I really liked understanding how life works, but I always missed a little bit the, the, the formal logic of it. It's more like qualitative thinking, but not too much quantitative logic thinking. So I was pretty attracted to it, uh, to this kind of mixing both from the beginning. And so the, the way it worked for me after that was that uh, I, I did my, my studies until the, um, uh, the PhD as a molecular biologist. So bioinformatics was just, let's say, 10, 15% of my, of my time, of my education, at least officially at the university. But on the, on the evenings, I was doing the math because I was really interested in it. So since I'm 18 years old, I do about one hour of math every day. To, uh, to educate myself, let's say. And this is how I managed to, uh, to keep a relatively okay level of math while, while still doing my career in biology. 
And so until PhD, uh, my education is molecular biology experimentation, like the, the normal stuff with uh, agarose gels, etc. And I'm, I liked it, but I was not super, super good at it. Still, I liked it. And after the end of, of my PhD, I, I decided, well, I, I really want a, a big change because I'm not really satisfied with the way things work in the experimental biology because of the community, because of the science itself, because of the way the way things are done. And so I decided I want I want to do a big jump, and uh, and this is how I started to do pure bioinformatics for my postdoc. So uh, I went to Amsterdam. And my supervisor of the time, Bas van Steensel, was uh, was nice enough to uh, to give me. I mean, he, he trusted me to to do the jump. Basically, he gave me one or two years to learn bioinformatics. No, no productivity uh, was demanded at the time, so I had I had full license to uh, to learn as much as I wanted. And that has been really the, the 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 key step has been at that point because I switched completely to bioinformatics from a molecular biology background. And so we're talking of a year that that was 2008. And I think, as I said in the beginning, this is quite representative of people of my age or my generation that because there was not enough training in bioinformatics at the time, many people had to do it this way. Like you start with molecular biology and you spend one or two years of your life just to to convert to something else. Nowadays, I don't think it works this way. But so so that's that's how I became a bioinformatician, let's say. And then uh, at 2000, in 2012, when I started my own lab in Barcelona, I really had the vision that I, I want to continue to do both. I am myself not really good at the bench, but I really like it. I really like to uh, to think of experiments and to uh, to be able to do them in order to test our hypotheses, etc. In the lab, so I wanted to build a lab that was uh, that was doing a bit of both, well, actually a lot of both. Uh, and this is how I started my blog. It was one idea to kind of collect a little bit of uh, of attention on, on the research we do with a bit more emphasis on the bioinformatics side than on the on on the biology because I have I want I mean on the experimental biology because I'll I've always found it really hard to attract good bioinformaticians. It's relatively easy to attract good experimenters, but it's really hard to attract good bioinformaticians and that was the purpose in the beginning to uh, kind of signal that we're doing this. And this is this is how I started to write about it a little bit on my blog. The the, the post that you mentioned, for example, the Burroughs Willow Transform, is is also kind of typical of what I like to write about. What I like to do on my blog, it's to uh, edutainment in a sense, like to go really deep into the uh, into the concept, into what happens, but also to kind of try and make it interesting a little bit and entertaining. I hope for some people. And this is it. So still today, I'm doing my one hour of math every day to uh, to keep up with. Uh, you know, with the discipline of of the math, uh, and and this is how this this manuscript came out. Basically, it's in my in my free time. You know, in my free hour of math every day, it, it's been incubating for quite some time. I think it's it's very impressive that you were able to pick up the mathematics just by yourself by doing, as you say, one hour a, a day, and uh, it should be very uh, encouraging to people who listen to this. I'm sure. Some of the listeners will find the subject a bit hard and, and maybe daunting. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it, it is difficult. Let's say, let, let's be honest. Uh, math is hard. Uh, logic is difficult, and, and all these things. They are very hard topics. What it takes is discipline, basically. Um, with the years, I've, I've realized that you don't really need to be super smart, but you need to have the discipline and to not give up. I think this is the most important message. You have to find the ways 
to continue making progress no matter how much you fail, basically. But I'd say this is the same for, for the whole of research in general. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, your article specifically deals with uh, the problem of read mapping. So uh, where does that interest come from? Yeah, it's also a, a very good question. Part of our research is uh, like most of what we do is experimental, but we very often have problems that deal with uh, with DNA sequencing. Uh, and so we needed to, to solve a couple of problems uh, that were important for us for the technology that we develop in the lab. And the very first that we needed to tackle is uh, some problem with uh, sequence clustering. So when when I started my lab, so we focused on that problem and we gave a, an okay solution, at least something that works for us. Uh, and that, that started my interest in DNA alignment. I really thought it was it was easy when I started. I thought, well, you know, a blast is everything there is and all the rest is is really not interesting. But by looking into it, by seeing how you know, how, how subtle this can be and how many different ways there are to, to solve that problem, I started to get a taste for it. So once once we solved this problem of, uh, of small sequence clustering, or at least gave a solution to it, then we were already contaminated in the lab by, by the big ideas of alignment, how we can do this better. Uh, and we don't really have an application in the lab, to be honest, uh, for, for read alignment. But we always had a very strong interest in this to make these uh, these algorithms better, just because we spend most of our computational resources aligning reads. I guess most of the planet <laughs> does this at the moment. Uh, I'd be happy to have some statistics about it. But like Illumina represents most of the uh, of the sequencing output, and I guess the next thing you do with your fastq files is to align them to some reference. Uh, and so we always felt like if we could, if we could bring a, even a small contribution to that we can we can actually uh, save a lot of uh, computational time on the planet so in the background of, of our minds we're always thinking a little bit about this and the only application we may have for it is for is for high c we do a lot of high c you know these techniques for a 3d structure of the genome and and we're we were always thinking maybe there's a way to to make a tailored mapping algorithm for high C because there's a couple of constraints on the problems that you don't have in other uh, in other cases so we could use it for faster better or etc and so we've been trying to make a, a mapper for high C for a couple of years now but it's because it's low priority we're not making a lot of progress we just think about it sometimes and this is how these uh, we came, we came to uh, brainstorm and and bounce these ideas so let's introduce the problem that you're trying to solve. So uh, what is seeding and uh, why do we need to optimize the seed length? Yeah, again, again, another great question. So uh, the, the problem of DNA alignment is, uh, is a, a complicated problem. It's, a, it's an N-square problem. Nobody has found a better solution to, make, to find the optimal alignment between, between two sequences that beats uh, n square complexities where n is the length of the uh, of the sequences so when you have two short sequences this this is trivial this goes really fast but when you have when one of these sequences is really long let's say a genome then already the the n square property makes it quite slow and since the already the 80s people have been thinking of how to how to beat that how to go a little bit faster than this especially when you have either two very large sequences or one very large sequence and a lot of small sequences to align to uh, to this, like in the case of the genome. Uh, and seeding methods 
kind of rapidly the community settled around this, this heuristic. So it's a way to make the alignment much faster. But then there is a cost. If you use the, uh, the standard uh, dynamic programming methods, you're sure you're going to get the best alignment, that's for sure. Uh, but it's going to be slow. So now if you accept a certain risk of not getting the best alignment, it can be a small risk, let's say, less, much less than 1%, for example, but you can you can gain an enormous amount of speed. And so so this is the general concept and idea of developing heuristics. So it's inexact algorithms that are much faster, <clears throat> but they have a risk of not, getting, not giving you the, the optimal solution. So seeding has been kind of the... The, the de facto uh, consensus of what is the best way to speed up the uh, alignment algorithms since the 80s. And the way it works is that instead of aligning the two sequences uh, together, you're going to try and find short, perfect alignment, perfect match between the two sequences. So you chop the, the smaller sequence in small pieces, and you're going to try and find perfect matches of these small small pieces with the with the genome, for example. Uh, and this, it goes much faster because in practice, it's much, much easier to find perfect matches than to find imperfect matches. So everything is based on that idea that finding perfect matches is faster than finding imperfect matches. So once you've chopped your small sequence into even smaller pieces, you look for perfect matches in the, in the bigger sequence. And when you find a cluster of small, of small matches, then you may think, okay, maybe my sequence will be perfectly nudged in, in this cluster. And you try the local alignment, you try the, the alignment method, which are slow, but only locally, not globally. So that, that's the whole principle. <clears throat> and today, the, uh, uh, as far as I know, all the mappers, all the short read mappers work with, with this method because it would be way, way too slow to try and find for every read that you that you have sequenced to find the optimal uh, to be 100% that you have the optimal alignment with the genome so all the algorithms that I'm aware of are using this uh, uh, this method this heuristic and it's about 50% of the time let's say you depends on the uh, on the algorithm of course when we do uh, rapid benchmarks with BWA etc and, uh, and similar programs it looks like the program spends about 50% of the time on the seeding part and then another 50% of the time on the local alignment part. In the, so you say uh, both in, in our email conversation and in your manuscript that uh, this problem of finding the optimal seed length, it was uh, solved for BLAST but not for read mapping. So what makes uh, these two problems different? Yeah, I, I was wondering as well, uh, because it really looks like, like they're the same. The way BLAST works uh, is that the protein is, uh, is chopped into smaller pieces, and each piece is given, is given a score, and this thing is aligned to the database of proteins, of, of non-redundant proteins that is in the... Uh, that is, uh, so the, sequence, the non-redundant sequences that are in the database. And I've been thinking for a long time exactly why the... Uh, why the problems are, are are not quite similar, not much less as uh, uh, as what it looks. And right now, I can't really remember what's the uh, what's, what's the fundamental reason why they're different. Maybe it's going to come to come back at some point. But let's say the uh, the fundamental difference why we can't just use BLAST to uh, to uh, to align short read map, uh, short reads in the genome right now. I, c- I can't tell you. Right. So 
my question is rather, why can't we use the same method, not necessarily use Blast itself to align reads, but to use their uh, method of finding the optimal seed length? You know, why can't that be applied to read mappers? Because you develop the mathematical theory where it's possible to give a an approximate but asymptotically correct answer to the question of, uh, you know, what's the probability to miss the correct site if we pick this particular seed length? And I think they, the, the BLAST authors, solved this more or less computationally, right? Just by uh, doing random simulations. Surely that's possible for read mapping as well, right? Yeah, you know, of, of course it is. Of course it is. Uh, the, the way... Uh... Blast solve it is actually not by doing random simulations. They they worked out the math. It is very elegant. They they used uh, a theory that's based on the on the random walks on the random walk theory, and this is how they can compute the op, let's say not the optimal score, but they can compute the, the null distribution of the score if your two sequences are not related. So they have a distribution of what it what it should be, and if your score beats that, then uh, then you have a hit. I'd say at least you can associate a, a p-value or, or or an expectation value based on the on the on the score uh, that you observe compared to what you expect. And uh, surprisingly, they did not redo really this uh, with simulations, but they did this mathematically by using random walks. This is actually the difference between FASTA and BLAST. Uh, FASTA was using simulations to get the score, and this is why it was so slow because every time it was re uh, resampling. The, uh, the sequence and, and kind of you know, querying it again in the database. But it was not working very, very fast. So BLAST solved that problem. You needed to query the sequence only once, and then you immediately had the, had the score or, or the p-value for, for you hit. So it's, it's almost the same problem with the, with the read mapping, and the, the tiny differences uh, are the following. The first is that when you do a, a read mapping, you're looking for a single place where it's going to go in the genome. What BLAST solves is uh, to find local alignment. So it kind of chops the protein to small pieces, like protein domains, and it tries to find if there is any homology with that particular piece of the, of the protein. It's okay to chop the protein into smaller pieces, let's say five or six, doesn't matter very much, because each part of the protein will have its own, uh, let's say, its own hit. Okay, the, the fact that they're in the same protein doesn't really matter very much because the protein is really chopped into smaller pieces. In the case of a, of a read, you can't really do that. You're, you're solving the global alignment problem. It's not completely true because the reads themselves can be chimeric, they can be split into smaller pieces. But from the computational point of view, the problem you're solving is not the local alignment problem, but more the, the global alignment problem as far as the, the read is concerned. The other thing is that in the case of BLAST, the null model is based on evolution. So they have computed the transition probabilities between the amino acids, assuming that proteins evolve with natural selection and, and all the process that we know. And so they have been able to compute the probability that an, an alanine goes to, a, I don't know, an isoleucine or something like that with a, with a certain amount of time or, or, or etc. So they have scores for this that, that took a long time to develop. And these are let's say they're they're kind of set in the uh, in the blast algorithm in the case of the short read alignment 
The problem is that you don't know the errors that are made by the, by the program. And so it means that you can't really set anything in stone for the problem that you have. But still, you could, you could say, for example, that most of the reads are, are done with Illumina, and then we know that there's about 1% to 2% substitution rates with, uh, with most of the Illumina sequence rates. So it could have been possible to, to do something like that. But somehow, uh, nobody has thought it was a good idea because the, the instruments keep changing. Uh, and so like, I think nobody's comfortable with, with putting this directly in stone in the directly in the software for mapping the, the reads. So I guess these are the two main differences between how BLAST works and how the, the short read alignments work. And you can't just use exactly the same concepts and plug them into the problem. Yeah, got it. So I guess, yeah, the main difference is the difference between local alignment and global alignment, right? Because your second difference, sure, it's true, but if anything, it would make BLAST harder, like uh, this uh, problem for BLAST, harder uh, because you have all these substitutions with different weights, whereas your error model, at least the model you described in the manuscript, is, I think, relatively um, simple. Oh, it's much more. Yeah, of course, it's much simpler than the than protein evolution. And so the uh, practical outcome of your work is that you come up with almost a formula, except it requires uh, to, to solve a polynomial equation but it's almost a formula to estimate the um, chance of of missing a true read mapping right for a given seed length for a given uh, read length and so how would the general population use your results so i'm thinking you could create like a web page where someone could enter their parameters and get the you know the distribution of uh, seed length that they they could use uh, because if Everyone who wants to take advantage of this has to figure out how to solve and uh, numerically solve this uh, polynomial equation. It's <laughs> I don't see getting much traction. So how, no. how do you plan to productionize this? Yeah, so the, the main result, yeah, you described it very well. It's, it's almost a formula, but not quite. You still have a mini problem to solve, and this is a... You got a polynomial equation, and you still need to solve it. The, the way the manuscript is written... Uh, today, I guess it's completely useless for most people. Like they, it, it's quite interesting to see how things work, but practical applications, it would be way too much for them to implement the the things that are in there. So that the point is, of course, to go beyond that. Uh, what you suggest is a good idea to have a kind of a server that says here, like you you got this bit size, you've got that particular error rate, and you want this particular seed length. Uh, and here's your numbers. These are the probabilities that you'll miss the seed, well, that you'll miss the, that you won't have a seed that really matches to the proper location in the read. These are the probabilities that you'll make this type of error, etc. That that could be one. Uh, ideally, I'd like to make it a um, a library, you know, a like written in a in a fast language, but that works uh, for for Python, C, or etc. So. Uh, I'm, I'm working on it. I'd like to make a library so that you just uh, call the functions and then you get instantly the, the answers so that you can actually put them, copy-paste the code in, in your favorite map or your favorite tool so that you can estimate the parameters on the fly. I think that's really important. The, uh, the, the way I see future progress in bioinformatics is, of course, by alg better algorithms, faster methods, uh, better data structures, etc., but we need to make a lot of effort on the user interface. Uh, and one of the particular things that bugs me every time when I use uh, 
so many pieces of software that are written by the community is the horrible high number of parameters. Like sometimes you have yeah. to, to tweak 20, 30, even more parameters to to even get something sensible. So it's great because you got full flexibility, but sometimes you would like to have the auto-tune button. Like it, it, it's, these are not super complicated problems. It's just that you need to have a human that checks, is this better, is this not better, etc. And this ends up taking hours and hours, easily hours of work in in cases where you could just say, okay, please auto-tune the stuff, uh, run the software and give me the, the optimum. Like I don't need to, need to do it manually. And that would be the goal. The end goal would be to be to be able to to have these numbers computed relatively fast with relatively few computational resources, so that the programs could call the functions and just make a couple of comparisons. Okay, if I use seeds of that length, then the program is going to take that much time to run and will have that much uh, probability of false positive, false negatives, etc. And then based on this, picking a decision and. So either auto-tuning, so that the user does not does not have to make these decisions for themselves, or giving the user a couple of options, saying, okay, here's your trade-off. If you want to run really fast, like it's going to be done in that much time, let's say an hour, but then 50% of your reads will, will, not be, will not be right. And if you have the time, and this is really important for you to have uh, to have high-quality result, they will take, I don't know, three days, and then you're going to have only 1% of the reads that will be misplaced. I think this kind of information is is useful for the uh, for the user, you know, to really have something that makes sense for them, which are time, probabilities, etc. But if you tell them just the value of the parameters, like k equals fifteen and m equals nineteen, that doesn't speak to anybody. Yeah. So that that's the goal. Cool, cool. And I think I saw this idea in a remapping tool called uh, QShow Two. Mm-hmm. So, so they say exactly what you just said that we want to auto tune our seat length but then they use an error model which is much simpler and is is very crude compared to what you describe in your manuscript so i think that they would totally benefit from uh from a library like that if they could just plug it in their read mapping tool yeah what so and there are many ways to do it of course uh uh, and and you can actually get away with it by doing a little simulation It, it works fine probably the the read mapping are quite long when you think about it. You're up for a couple of hours of mapping uh, most of the time. So you could just uh, try different things on, I don't know, 100,000 reads or, or a small number, a million, something like this, see what works best. And then when you found it, you you map the rest of the of the file with the conditions that you found. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that nowadays we could do this. Of course, it's not, it's not really a big issue. It's just that we can do it a little bit better, a little bit faster with the, with the, uh, with these methods. To, to be honest, the um, let's say the, the true gain of of the manuscript, I don't expect it to be really enormous, uh, because all these things we we can't do in other ways. It's not like we have a, you know, we have broken a, a technological lock or something like this. Like we can already most of these of these things, in other ways. It's just that this will be a little bit less wasteful if we use methods that are kind of pre-computed. And and also is the, the real purpose of the manuscript is of course to show how analytic combinatorics works and how we can use it for bioinformatics for real world problems. So I hope that you know that this is not the last idea that people have with, on how to use analytic combinatorics. Yeah, it's it's a, such a beautiful theory, and and you do a very good job of introducing. So this is not like a typical academic paper that is very terse and. Uh, 
if you want to learn more, just go read a textbook, but you really put a lot of effort into explaining these concepts and giving a lot of uh, you know examples so people really can understand what's going on there. And I absolutely agree that uh, this is uh, probably the main benefit of your work. And I would encourage everyone to, to read it. And we'll get into some details a bit later. Um, but speaking of uh, practical considerations, so you rely on knowing the error distribution, uh, the various parameters of like how errors can occur. And for substitution errors, I guess you could just uh, look at the quality scores. But what about like insertion or deletion errors? How would you estimate those parameters in practice? Yeah, uh, I I tend to not believe at all the quality scores. Uh, this is the first thing I remove from from the FASTQ file. Um, I, yeah, <laughs> I'm not convinced at all by, by this thing. I always map FASTA files, to be honest. I never actually care about the quality scores. Um, I had too many problems with it. So I think the only way to to estimate the parameters of the errors, like how many insertions, how many deletions, how many substitutions in what context, etc., is to align the reads. So you have to uh, find some kind of very general parameters uh, to map the first few reads. And when you've got a couple of alignment, then you, your numbers start to be accurate. You will see how often you get a, an insertion, how often you get a deletion, how many nucleotides are deleted every time you get a deletion, etc. So kind of the proof is in the pudding type of approach. You, you first try it, see what you get, get your numbers from what, you, what you've learned, and then you, you start all over again with these numbers then you assume that uh, there is the ground truth in the data, right? So you would set these parameters to the most lax values so that each read definitely maps somewhere. And then you just assume that uh, that is uh, where where the read comes from, right? Yeah, and then you make an error, of course. Of course, like, because there's the, the reason that you haven't mapped it may be because they've got too many mutations, too many errors, sorry. And so, of course, you're going to underestimate the amount of errors when you do that. Uh, but at least they will give you the right ballpark, you know. If you know that you're, you've taken a sequence from a particular genome and that you really trust that, you've, that you have only the 1% to 2% Illumina error rate, then, then that's good. You know what you expect. But most of the time... You have the reference genome, but the actual genome from which you take the sequence is one in the population. So you also have the SNPs, you also have other things. Yeah. So you've got all sorts of other errors that are coming from the experiment, from the way it was done, and from, from plenty of other things, from the mutation rate of the PCR and all these things. So your, your error rate of the instrument is not always the one that dominates. In practice, it does most of the time because it's, it's much higher than the rest. But there are some problems in which you're not really able to know the... Uh, uh, the error rate before you start. And so that's the way I see it, that you should just try uh, at least get the, the numbers kind of right, plus or minus a couple of percent, uh, and and start from there. But of course, you can estimate this super, super accurately. I'd say within you know the error rates, if you're if they're accurate within 10% of the actual value, this is really quite impressive. For read mapping, you don't really care about this split between genetic variation and instrument errors because they just uh, are combined to produce your, for example, substitution rate. And for, Absolutely. for this problem, yeah, you don't care. No, no, indeed. 
that's the point that that really an error is an error like a, yeah. a difference is a difference it doesn't really matter where it comes from so your uh, preprint as i mentioned it, it has this unusual form it reads more like lecture notes than than an academic paper it's it's very uh, detailed very pedagogical and i'm curious what are your plans regarding this um are, are you going to try and publish this as as a paper or what's the fate of this well i i hope to be able to publish this in a in more use useful uh, papers first uh, that they would be reviewed uh second published in, in academic journals I, i hope so uh when i started to work on this uh, i i realized i need to do it this way with a with a relatively big preprint in the end it's kind of 70 pages or so with a lot of detail to explain the whole theory. And the reason I was thinking this is because pretty much nobody really knows what analytic combinatorics is in the in the bioinformatic community. And and there's not really any obvious application for now. Uh, so I thought this thing for me belongs to the future. Right now the the audience for this type of uh, of work is relatively small. So I'm better off kind of trying to do as much theory as I can to explain it as clearly as I can right now and put it on a preprint server so it stays hopefully a couple of years uh, until more people kind of know about these ideas until it attracts a little bit more attention and then they can go back to it and see that the the concepts are clearly explained in almost a tutorial. I really wanted to write a tutorial about analytic combinatorics so that they can refer to a central document that kind of explains to them how to get started with these ideas, et cetera. So that'd be, it'd be ready there at the point when the community is big enough, the community of interest for this um, for this topic is big enough. So that was my plan. It was really to make it as didactic as possible on one hand, to explain the concepts, the basic concepts as clearly as possible, but also to to show a couple of advanced examples. So the by the end of the of the of the manuscript, It becomes a little bit more difficult to understand because the examples are, are more and more involved. But it's also to show that there's no limit, basically. You can use these techniques for whatever you want. You can solve simple problems, but you, you can also attack really complicated problems if you want to spend the uh, the time and the resources on this. So the purpose of this document is just to be a reference, really a tutorial. I think that's the best the best way to describe it for for people that will have an interest in bioinformatics for understanding how by, uh, how analytic combinatorics works and what they can do with the examples, what they can do with it. What what comes next? So first off, uh, it says one, C- applications to seeding because there will be a two, uh, which will be for, um, for methods with, in multiple dimensions. So all the, all the things I show in this, in this preprint here are, analytic combinatorics with a single variable, but you also have methods for multiple variable. So the second preprint will be about about these methods and uh, some applications to uh, genome assembly and to uh, clustering in 1D problems. Now for for the particular work that is in the in the in the manuscript, I would like to uh, to make maybe two articles with it. One that mm-hmm. really explains uh, the uh, the basic concepts. Let's see here. The, the main ones uh, being, of course, the weighted generating function, but also the other ones that are a little bit more tailored to that particular problem of, of sequences and, and read mapping. And another one uh, that would actually be useful with a, a real piece of software that computes the probabilities of different kinds of errors 
based on the type of uh, of error models that you have uh, with the read. So telling you with this error model, with with such and such probabilities of insertion, deletions, substitutions, you will have so many percent of the time a read that you can't map and so many percent of the time a read that maps at the wrong location. Yeah. And uh, regarding how you yourself uh, came across analytic combinatorics, I, kn I know you have a very curious story about that. Do you want to tell it? Yeah, sure. So uh, it was uh, three to four years ago at the beginning of Coursera. Uh, back then, they were really trying to advertise this model of uh, massive online education, open education. And so they they were proposing a lot of courses and everything was pretty much for free. You just had to click on the on the button and the next thing you had you had the videos and you can you can start learning. So I got very, very enthusiastic about these things when, when that started. Now now it is a little bit less because it's more complicated. They have formalized it a little bit more. You need to pay, you need to, to follow track courses, And it's a little bit more complicated. Uh, but back then that was that was the jungle. You could just download whatever you wanted, watch and learn. And I, I followed a couple of classes on things that are not really my my expertise. And this was one of them. This was uh, a course by uh, Robert Sedgwick. Uh, it's two courses, actually, that, that he put on Coursera. And um, and it took me quite some time to, uh, to follow it and to understand it. What I really liked about it is that I, I felt at the end of the... Uh, of the course that I hadn't taken everything out of it. Most of the time when I took a class on Coursera, after after the final, watching the last video, I really had the impression that's okay. Now I understand how these things work and I got a good good overview of uh, of the of the field or whatever they wanted to present and I mastered this good enough. But in the case of that particular course, it was pretty obvious that I really hadn't gotten the, the essence of it yet, that I felt... I need to spend more hours on this to understand what we can do with it because I feel this is very interesting, but I'm not able to really use it for anything for anything practical. So, I I bought the books that are associated with the uh, with the Coursera class and I started to uh, uh, to read them, and I was pretty sure that I would be done reading the book in about one or two months. <laughs> but I've, so it's been one year and a half now, and I'm only halfway through the first book uh, out of two, about halfway, uh, because it's so dense. It's really so dense and so full of, of let's say, mathematical wisdom. I'm not sure that will speak to many people, but that's really the way I, I felt it. That every exercise, every word is is really, really dense. These two authors, um, so it's uh, Robert Sedgwick and Philippe Flagellet, they really managed to make something that is uh, that is really dense and that is worth spending the hours thinking about. And so it, it's it's in the middle of this, let's say, uh, halfway through the first book that the ideas finally started to uh, to combine for me and, and and to say, okay, now I understand this well enough so that I can start to think of real applications for what we do in bioinformatics. I think by now we uh, piqued uh, our listeners' interest in uh, analytic combinatorics. So let's uh, dive a bit into it and maybe explain a couple of concepts to give a feel for it. So one of the central objects in analytic combinatorics is a generating function. Can you explain roughly what that is? 
Yeah, it's this one is complicated. This one is complicated. Uh, well, everything is complicated, of course, because now we're just talking. Uh, we're just talking, and it's very difficult. Most most people find it quite hard to explain, even when they have a whiteboard and and they've got a PowerPoint or something like this. So just by talking is going to be a little bit difficult, but yeah. we'll try. The way the way I do this when I have to explain this in a, in a seminar or something like this is as to really roll back to what what is science, even what is thinking. In reality, why? How does science work? Oh, well. And science, we never really solve problems. We don't really solve problems. What we do is we translate problems in a world in which we can solve them. We solve them in this in this world, and then we translate them back in, in the real world. So pretty much everything works like that, even experimental biology. So you want to solve the problem of a particular sickness, but you don't start like that, not at all. The first thing you do is you make a model for it. You choose a model organism you make sure that you can represent some of the features of of the real sickness in your model organism and you study it there. You don't really study it on the patient because it's much more efficient. And in your kind of you know transformed problem, which is like your your silly mouse with its silly problem that's not really a patient, you know, then you find a solution in that context. And once you find the solution in this context, you translate it back to patients because it's much more efficient to work this way. And we don't really know how to solve direct problems. We always translate them into a framework where we know we can find a solution. We find a solution in this framework, and then we translate back. So that's one example with model organisms in, um, uh, in biology. But math works this way. You know, the Fourier transform, this is exactly what it is. You get a problem that's really complicated in one space. You do the Fourier transform, and then suddenly everything becomes super easy. You can... You you can do whatever you want, transformations on this problem, and it becomes relatively simple to solve it in a different space. Once you have the solution in that different space, you translate it back into the, the initial problem that you had. Or, um, you know, uh, the eigenvalue decomposition is, again, one other problem of this. You just find a space in which your matrix has a simple representation. Everything becomes easy. You can solve the problems easier, and then you translate it back to the initial problem. So as far as I know, everybody does this all the time. That's the way we solve problems. We never solve them directly. We always find a model, a representation for the problem, and a space where the solution will be easy. So that's exactly the concept of uh, generating functions or weighted generating functions in the document that I wrote. You have a combinatorial problem, and these problems, you, you can try and attack them directly, but most likely it's going to be difficult, cumbersome. You're going to fail because you're going to have long equations and things are going to be just you know, complicated, basically. So you transform the problem into a space where everything will become easy. And this is exactly what the generating function does. So that's, that's the why of the gener generating function. It doesn't tell you what it is, but at least right. it tells you why we do it. Now, what is it? Uh, it's just a way to count things. Okay, So uh, we count one, two, three. Uh, so we use numbers to count things. But there are, there are other ways to, uh, to count and in particular, when you want to count uh, infinite sequences, let's say the, the sequence that would be 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, etc., the powers of 2, uh, you have different ways of, of writing it. And the uh, one way would be to write all the numbers. Of course, you can because there's an infinite amount of them. Another way would be to use a function representation of these numbers. And you would say this is, for example, 1 times x plus 2 times x squared plus 4 times x to the power of 3, plus 8 times x to the power of 4, etc. So you just use a Taylor representation in which you've got a, a variable. In, in, the, in the case that I just said, it's the variable x. 
and the coefficients of this Taylor uh, representation is the initial series of numbers that you were interested in. And that really is uh, what a generating function is. It's just a way to associate a series of numbers, one, two, four, eight, etc., to a function uh, thanks to the Taylor, Taylor series representation. And the point is that you've got exactly the same information in the original sequence of numbers as you have in the function, because there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between the two. So it's, it's exactly the same amount of information, but one of them is really, really big. You can't even write them all. The other one is really compact because you can write a function for this. Yeah, but this is just part of the story because it's good that they are in one-to-one -one correspondence, but then the question is like, why do you have to consider a function versus just a sequence? Why do you have to multiply these numbers by powers of x and then add them up, right? And I think the answer is that it just happens so that mathematical operations on these functions like addition and multiplication translate to very useful operations on these uh, numbers and these sequences. Exactly. That's the whole point of the idea, is that when you do these, this transformation to say, I start from a sequence of numbers on, on which I could not do many operations, not many combinations, etc. If I turn it into that particular function, then I made myself a really nice gift. Because with these functions, I'm able to make operations that will correspond to uh, relatively complex things in terms of sequ sequences of numbers, relatively simple operations when they're considered as functions. So for example, when you want to take uh, when you want to take two objects and you want to concatenate them, then that corresponds to taking the generating function of the first object and multiplying it by the generating function of the second object. So this is really analogous to uh, for those who know of the Fourier transform that the multiplication in the Fourier space corresponds to the convolution in the, in, the, in the sequence space. And convolution is a pretty complicated operation to perform, but multiplication is a relatively simple operation to perform. And so it's the same idea that once you've trans transformed your, your sequences to functions, then by just doing multiplications, additions mostly, and divisions, you will be able to, to perform relatively complicated combinations of operations on your initial sequences. Yeah, and in fact, uh, the product of generating functions also gives you a convolution of the sequences. So I, I actually haven't thought about it uh, this way before, but uh, this this analogy is really interesting because it goes deeper, and I wonder whether there are uh, some deep mathematical connection. But you're right, uh, both Fourier transform and generating functions give you uh, convolutions yeah absolutely absolutely so the multiplication of two uh, two generating functions is a convolution right and i'm, I'm sure th so there is a presentation of uh, discrete fourier transform in terms of uh, polynomials and multiplication of polynomials i think there is an excellent uh, lecture by dan gosfield uh, i don't know if you if you saw that nope. uh, where he motivates uh, and basically derives the uh, discrete Fourier transform through through polynomials and, and their roots and their coefficients. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can, you can do it this way, indeed. And then you can re replace the, uh, the the free variable by by the uh, the nth root of, of one. I'm, yeah. I'm not sure how it's called exactly. So like the complex number that raised to the power n is equal to one, and you just replace the, the free variable with this, and you get the Fourier transform. So there is definitely a, uh, 
a very strong relation between the two. But they say the the most the strongest relation is really philosophically. They they want to do the same thing and they use the same methodology to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and another useful way I found to think about this is that the generating function generalizes the notion of uh, probability because if you have two uh, events uh, which are independent and have certain probabilities, then the combination of events uh, has the probability of the product of probabilities. But then when you assign like uh, sizes to these events, right, then a generating function allows you to keep track of probability for every size. But then you also multiply generating functions. Uh, but now it gives you probability for each size and the size is always a combination. So if you have a combination of two events, then the size of this combination is the sum of the sizes. And so this is where the convolution arises because if you want to get total size of five, you can do this either by picking event of uh, size zero from the first set and size five from the second set or one and four or two and three. And so you have to consider all these combinations and multiply their probabilities and add them up. So in this way, a generating function is a probability that also keeps track of the size of the object. Yeah, I didn't think about this, but this is right. that this You could say it's a generalization. Let's say it's a little bit more of an extension of probabilities because you don't just keep track of the probabilities of the events, but also you associate to them a variable, which is the size, for example, or, or some feature. You can you can add more. So of course the size in the in the manuscript that I wrote is the the essential one, but you can even do this with a with more than just one variable. This is also something that I, I wanted to touch upon in the very last section of the manuscript to sh- to show that you can also associate these probabilities with uh, not just the size but other events. Let's say the total number of of errors in the read or something like this. So it's it's indeed a very good way to think about it. It's it's kind of probabilities with with labels in a sense. Yeah, and another application. I don't know if you if you thought about it. You have this example in in your tutorial where you consider two objects, one with probability p and the other is with probability q, and so the combination you get this expression p square plus two p q plus q square, and that of course reminds us of the Hardy Weinberg equation. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that this is a very, well, not, not exactly this, but if you add a second variable, this becomes a good way to derive and formulate the Hardy-Weinberg equation. Because I, I often see, for example, when <laughs> biologists who, who are not also mathematics enthusiasts like you, uh, when, when they write down the Hardy-Weinberg equation, they often write it down as p square plus 2pq plus q square equals 1. And that, of course, is 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 not the the Hardy Weinberg law. It's just a simple algebraic identity, but that doesn't <laughs> tell you that p square is the frequency of this uh, homozygous you know combination. So in order to express this formally, you just add two variables, and now you can separate this p square and two pq. So there, it it's not just a sum of numbers, but it's a formal combination. So you you get uh, p square capital A square, right, plus 2PQ, capital A, small a, plus Q square, small a square. Yeah, it's, it's a very good, very good idea. I don't really think we can explain Heidi Weinberg 
thanks to analytic combinatorics, but probably we can explain analytic combinatorics with Heidi Weinberg because most people, most biologists at least are are comfortable with with this concept. It's exactly the same. Indeed, like the size now is the number of alleles of capital A or small a. So you either have zero, one, or two. And this is exactly the point, indeed. Yeah, and, and then uh, maybe you could derive something uh, more complicated than Hardy-Weinberg. I, I, I honestly don't know, but could be. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I haven't thought about this too much, to be honest. There, Everything that has some level of formal, uh, formal thinking can potentially uh, benefit from analytic combinatorics. And uh, I'm myself not... Uh, I don't know enough about population genetics. I love it, but I don't know enough about it. And maybe there are some problems that we could, that we could solve with it, or some evolutionary model, etc. Um, one th- one thing is that in the in the manuscript that I that I just published on bioarchive, it's only about sequences, like, because like, I'm concerned with the DNA sequences. But analytic combinatorics has a huge um, a huge area with trees. Actually, most of the time, actually, they start by explaining how trees work and how you can use analytic combinatorics to, to very, very efficiently solve problems with trees. And it's quite interesting because it's based on, on recursions. And I guess this is why the teachers prefer to start with uh, with trees because it immediately shows the, the benefit. The problems are, are really, really hard to, to solve without analytic combinatorics. But as soon as you use some kind of uh, uh, recursion thinking and you can write the generating function of the trees, everything becomes really easy. Yeah, and let's touch on the uh, second important concept from from your tutorial, which is the transfer graph. So do you want to try to explain what transfer graph is and why we need it? Yeah, so the uh, the, the concept of a transfer graph, it's kind of new. So this is the one that I didn't see anywhere uh, before. Uh, so it may actually be a, a novel concept. Of course, it's very, very difficult to, to have new ideas. I'm pretty sure that something equivalent has been has been written somewhere else and it's based on on a concept uh, of a transfer matrix but i when i was writing the uh, writing the manuscript i realized right, it's pretty difficult to uh, to explain how transfer matrices work uh, because they're quite formal and for for the audience that really wants to have concrete explanations it's not working very well so i immediately uh, decided to, to represent them in a, in a formal way by doing by doing a transfer graph, and the idea of a transfer graph is really to represent sequences. So you can imagine that you're that you're playing Lego or something like this, and you have uh, some very simple Lego with a, uh, with only uh, two ends, a beginning and an end. You cannot combine them in in more ways, but you get different colors. You got two, three, four colors, and you would like to describe to a, to a friend of yours. Uh, some sort of uh, sequences of Lego that you, that you can build. And you would say, for example, I want you to build all the sequences such that you never put a blue block after a green block. You can do anything you want, but you can never put a blue block after a green block. So how would you write this? So you'd actually send to your friend a graph with uh, all the colors of block that are, that are possible. Uh, and you would put an arrow every time a block and follow another. So the yellow block would have an arrow to the, to the blue block because you can put a blue block after a yellow yellow block. So you put all the arrows from which you can do combinations of the blocks that can follow each other, but you would not put a, an arrow between the blue block and the green block because this this is not not allowed. And so how your friend would then uh, create these, uh, these sequences is by just following the arrows on the graph. Okay, so you just start from the beginning and you just keep following the arrows. And for any particular path that you've gone through this graph, 
you have constructed one particular sequence of Lego blocks, which never violates the constraint that there should not be a blue block after a green block. Yeah, so that's basically a finite automaton. Yeah, yeah, that, that's the, the. I think it's more of a, a augmented finite automaton because the edges can be quite complex. The one that I just described is a finite automaton exactly. In the case of a transfer graph, the edges can be complicated objects, complex objects, because the edges are weighted generating functions. And these can already be much more than a, than a simple object. They can be a tree, they can be a sequence of trees, they can maybe cycles of sequences of trees or something like this. So you have a little bit more flexibility in the, in the letters, right? So, so it's a way to, to maybe extend this a little bit beyond just a, a finite alphabet, because now you can start to put relatively complex objects after each other. But the, it's exactly the concept of a finite automaton. Yeah, and uh, I, I also think that this analogy between generating functions and uh, probabilities works very well here because um, if, you, if you replace in your transfer graph and transfer matrix generating functions with just simple probabilities, you get a mark of chains and the transition matrices for Markov chains, and they're, of course, very familiar and especially even applied to uh, DNA sequences, right? People use exactly. uh, Markov models, hidden Markov models all the time. So this is just um, Markov chains, but where you generalize the probability to this generating function that also keeps track of the size. Yeah, exactly. That, that's exactly the idea. So one path through a transfer graph would correspond to one particular chain in a Markov chain model. Uh, but now you, you have extended a little bit the, the constraint of having only probabilities for the jumps with having complex objects, which themselves have complex probabilities. Yeah, yeah. And the advantage is that it doesn't feel so complicated. Like the, the whole point of this in reality is not, is not really to solve problems that we could not solve. I think most most of the things that I touch upon in the in the manuscript, we had ways to to solve them, like one way or another. Even by by throwing just computational, like very big computers at it, it's pretty obvious that we could have done this. Uh, but it's a little bit the opposite of machine learning. Okay, in machine learning, like you can solve the problems, but you don't understand how that works. With these approaches, you really understand what you're doing. Of course, there's a bit of a black box somewhere in how the mathematics work. But the point is that you can put intuition to kind of you know, raise the level of intuition of what you, can, what you can do, what you cannot do with your problems. That's the whole point. So these transfer graphs in reality are fairly simple. We can even represent them on a piece of paper most of the time. And yet they represent fairly advanced, fairly complex objects. And when applied to the problem of uh, seeding, so you gave this example with like a green block and, and a blue block. And uh, I guess that translates to a uh, error-free region, right? So the correct uh, region of the read, and they must alternate with uh, errors and er error regions. So uh, just, just to give our listeners any, an idea where uh, these graphs arise in seeding problems and how they apply. Yeah, exactly. That's the point. You could say you're, you're building sequences of, of Lego blocks with only two colors. The red one would be the, the ones that have an error, and the white one are the ones that, that don't have an error. So you could say if you want to have a seed uh, that, that's going to work for your read, you need to have at least, let's say, 20 nucleotides without error to be able to map them uniquely. Remember that the seeds 
are based on exact matching most of the time. So you need to have no error with at least 20 nucleotides in a row. So uh, in that case, you're, you're describing a graph in which you must put at least 20 white blocks in a row so that you have a seed. Or you can do the reverse. That's what I do in the, in, in the document. I'm describing the reads that don't have a seed, which means you're never allowed to put more than, more than 19 white blocks in a row. Every time you put 19, you have to put a red block after that so that there is no uh, nowhere in the read, nowhere in the sequence, 20 blocks without, uh, uh, without an error or uh, 20 white blocks in the case of the, of the formal thinking. So you just describe a graph in which it's impossible by just going randomly at, at whatever you want, all the paths, you can never have uh, uh, more than 19 white blocks in a row. And this is, of course, possible exactly because the generating function uh, tracks the size of the object. So it's not just the you have alternating green blocks and blue blocks, but you can say exactly that these green blocks are up to a certain size. Right. That's exactly the point. That as we've as we mentioned before, it's it's because you keep track of the size of the objects that makes it possible. Otherwise, it, it becomes quite complicated. Yeah, and. Uh, so just translating a problem into generating functions gives you a nice language to, to talk about it, but that doesn't immediately lead to a solution. But then there is this uh, beautiful result, how you can actually extract a numeric estimate, because the quantities of interest in generating functions usually correspond to the coefficient in a certain series, right, around a certain uh, power of, of the variable. So like uh, a k times z uh, to the power of k, and so you you're interested in a specific uh, z to the power of k, and you want to find the coefficient uh, in front of that uh, power. And by itself, if you try to compute that directly, you would perform the same computations that you would perform even if you didn't know about generating functions and would just work with the sequences. So uh, usually that's not much benefit, right? But then you apply this result, I guess, from complex analysis to to get the estimate. So uh, can you describe uh, that a little bit? Yeah, of course. It's, it's Let's say it's really the core of analytic combinatorics. So far we've described what is called the symbolic method. And you said it very nicely. It's a language. So now... Uh, Part of the theory is just to give you a language that tells you how you can combine things together. And, and there are tools just for, for doing this. Uh, and transfer matrices or transfer graphs is a tool for just doing that. It tells you how to build a, you know, a map or a plan of a construction plan for your particular objects. Like we've said, a block of a certain color could not follow a block of another color. Etc. So this is part of the symbolic method. And all it does is that it allows you to translate what you want to do with the real objects on what you have to do with their generating functions. But at the end, all you get is a generating function. You don't have the solution of your problem. You just have a generating function. But all these operations are made with one rule in mind. And you also said it very nicely, is that if you, if you consider the function as a Taylor series, the solution of your problem is always the coefficients of that Taylor series, right? So, like this is really how these uh, how these operations work. And once you've you've your final you've got your final generating function, you know one thing is that your solution is 
encapsulated in the coefficients of the Taylor series. And the problem becomes, how do I recover the coefficient of this Taylor series? And su surprisingly, it's an idea that came around only in 1990 by uh, Philippe Flageolet and, and Odlisco. And of course, the idea was, was in the year before. Uh, but it, it seems that it really doesn't appear very much before this. And the idea is, is to use complex calculus. So you have your function. And in order to extract the coefficient of the Taylor series, you, you can use a, a whole lot of theorems that are, that are out there. And they're fairly complicated. Most of the time, you'd have to derive the function. Let's say if you want the, the 30th term, you would have to derive the function 30 times. And that's really quite complicated. So that's not very interesting. So it seems a little bit that your your coefficients are trapped in there. You can't really track, extract them easily. And so what, what Flajoli and Dolisco realized is if you're okay to have a very, very good approximation, so you don't want to have the exact solution, but you want to have an excellent approximation, then you can do this really simply. And so what we mean by relatively good, like really good approximation, is that if you want the coefficient, the, the coefficient let's say 30 or 50 or 100, they will become increasingly accurate. 30 will be already very good, but 50 will be exponentially better and 100 will be exponentially more accurate than, than the previous two. And, and the way it works, the way uh, Flageolet mostly realized this, is by looking at your function, not as a real function, but as a complex function. And you just have to find the um, singularities of the function. So that's the point where it's not defined, you know, because the denominator is zero. You just look at the singularities, and once you've got the singularities, you, you have it. You pretty much have it. Then, with just the knowledge of the singularity of the function, you can describe extremely accurate approximation of the numbers you're looking for. It's, it's fairly difficult to explain by, you know, by just talking, etc., but the math is, is really not that complicated. For, for the simple case, I think everybody with uh, two or three years of, of basic math can understand it fairly, fairly simply. The theorem is much, much more general than, than the one I gave in the manuscript. Uh, this is just a, a small version, which is uh, completely sufficient for everything I do in the, in the manuscript. But the, the theorem is much more general. And this is where the difficulty was. It was to, gener to realize how general this result is, that it doesn't even need to be on, on the relatively simple cases that I gave in the manuscript, that it works pretty much all the time, this method. Yeah. So I hope by now we gave... Uh, the listeners enough motivation and background to to go and read your excellent tutorial um uh, before i let you go um you mentioned in uh, our email conversation that uh, you found a bug uh, where the random generator was not random and i was I'm very curious what that was and how you tracked it down yeah so for me this work has been uh, really pleasant it's also been a, an eye-opener of what it means to be quantitative. Uh, like I said, I'm a, I'm a molecular biologist by training, and most of the science I do is qualitative. And qualitative science is really great because like, it's yes or no, and you don't really have much doubt about it. But I, I never really had a quantitative thinking. And for the first time with this work, I realized what it means to be quantitative with four, five, six digits uh, precision or something like this. I realized how much information you have and how much you can tell about about your problem and how much you're in control or how much you're not in control. And what's really nice about, about the methods of analytic commentaries, the one that, I, that I'm showing in the, in the manuscript, is that you have the degree of precision that you want. It's really uh, up to you. I, I just described now the method of uh, Flagellando Lisco, which is to, um, to approximate the coefficients. 
but you also have the exact solution if you want to. That's the, that's the other benefit. The, it's a bit more work. You need to compute all the singularities, not just one. And in that case, you get the exact number. And the only thing that limits your precision in that case is the machine precision of your computer, which is, let's say, of the order of 10 to the minus 16 or something like that. So as long as you as you don't measure numbers that are smaller than 10 to the minus 16, then you're fine. You've got the pretty much exact solution of your problem. So when I was doing this work, I was also checking that I was not completely far off by doing simulations. And I could realize that there was this one problem where the result of the analytic combinatorics and the result of the simulations were off by 10 to the minus three, something like this. Like there was an error on the third or maybe fourth digit. But I knew like the theory told me like this should be much smaller than this. It really cannot cannot be that big. It has to be much smaller than this because I was using the complete uh, solution of the analytic combinatorics. And so I, of course, thought that I did the math wrong, but in the end, by eliminating all the possibilities, it turned out that I was just using the the uh, the random generator that comes with C, like there is these uh, uh, the standard ones uh, that are in the in the standard libraries, and these ones I learned this afterwards, asking my colleagues. Uh, it's fairly known that they have a, a periodicity of ten to the eight or ten to the nine, something like this. And because I was doing ten to the nine simulations to uh, to really get as much precision as I, as I could, then I was just looping through the through the whole random generator and that was not really getting any precision quite the quite the reverse so it turned out that on this particular case the uh, the math was correct and i was able to detect the fact that the random generating generator was looping after 10 to the 8 iterations something like this and the solution just consisted in using the uh, the state-of-the-art random generators which are machine twister rather than the ones that come with uh, uh, with c and that solved it completely very cool so before we finish, anything else uh, you'd like to talk about? I think we covered most uh, most of the ground, really. As as I said, I see this work really as a tutorial. And, and the most interesting part is, is definitely the first for the people who want to get acquainted a little bit with what analytic combinatorics is, what you can do with it, what the, what the central concepts are. And the second part is more to, to see what it can do, how far it can go. And, and I'm pretty sure it's just the beginning that there will be People smarter than me that will find ways to use it for for much more advanced problems and and things that I hope we really cannot do any other way. Everything that I'm showing here is we could do it another way, but I really hope that in the at some point people will be able to you know, to push the boundaries of what we can do now with bioinformatics thanks to these tools. Awesome. Uh, well, Guillaume, I'm uh, looking forward to your second work, and uh, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure.